Thank you for downloading this edition of Wartime. Remember, as always, Wartime is fully supported by contributions from listeners like you. For more information, please visit wartimepodcast.com. I hope you enjoy the program. In the midst of the greatest conflict in world history, the Soviet Union began to conquer surrounding nations in an attempt to build their mighty empire. Although some fell without resistance, the Scandinavian country of Finland valiantly resisted their advances. Fought for only five months, the winter war between Finland and the USSR saw some of the worst fighting conditions ever witnessed. Fought in temperatures averaging 40 degrees below zero, the USSR finally invaded its northern neighbor with a fighting force that was three times larger than the D-Day invasion three years later. On this episode, we discuss the Winter War. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime. Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to another edition of Wartime. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. On Season 5 of the series, we're discussing Battlegrounds, the who, what, where, when, and why of some of the most epic showdowns in history. As always, remember, history is best when it's shared. And you can follow me on Twitter at Brady Kreitzer. You can visit my Facebook page, facebook.com slash Kreitzer. You can visit my author's website for news, updates, and events, BradyKreitzer.com. And, of course, your home for everything wartime on the web, WartimePodcast.com. On today's episode, we're going to explore a war that, outside of very specific regions of the world, gets very little play in the grand scheme of world history. But it's a war that, even though it only lasts, say, six months or less, really set a new standard in the political and ideological struggle uh, that was the Second World War. Now, I know what you're thinking. We just had an episode on World War II. That's true. The Battle of Midway, Season 5, Episode 2. But when I think about today's topic, what we call the Winter War, I try not to think of it as part of World War II because the people who fought it, they certainly didn't view it as part of World War II. And the reasons that the war began didn't necessarily fit into what we expected from World War II. So, before we jump into this winter war, and I promise you, it is so worth it, I want to talk a little bit about why I chose this episode. One of the things that amazes me is that, you know, this is a little bit behind-the-scenes stuff, but... Uh, As someone who listens to a lot of podcasts, aside from doing my own, uh, when you do start your own podcast, you do have access to what you could call analytics. And the analytics I'm referring to sort of tell you who people are and where they're listening from. Like, I don't get your names, but I can see, you know, 20 people from uh, Brazil listened this week. And we have a lot of Brazilian listeners, which is great. Um, But the Facebook page has really opened my eyes to just what that means because those people aren't just, you know, random numbers. Those are folks like you and I, maybe you're some of them. Um, and you're listening to this history because you care a lot about it, but the Facebook page more than anything else has really helped me put names and faces to our community. 
And I think that's great. And one of the real dedicated groups of people we've had listening to this show uh, come from Finland. And they also give us some great recommendations for show topics. One of our listeners is Henrik. And Henrik asks if I would do an episode on a battle called Suo Musalmi, which I knew right away. And I was a little bit hesitant at first because how can you talk about a battle between Finland and Russia uh, in 1939 and 1940, uh, a six-month window, that's part of World War II, but not really the way we tend to think of it, uh, without some background information. So I said, rather than just focusing on the Battle of Suomusalmi, which we'll talk about again today, I want to talk about the entire Winter War, because as an imperial historian, this gives me a really great opportunity to kind of let you see the world the way I see it. Uh, again, no interpretation of history is wrong. I mean, there's some bad ones, but they're not wrong. But as a professionally, classically trained historian, I want you to see the world and the history of our planet the way I see it. And one of the things that I see when I study empire, again, I am an imperial historian, is how empires at war tend to change the world uh, in, in unique and unexpected ways. So here's what I mean. I studied the Seven Years' War. In America, we call it the French and Indian War, uh, 1756 to 1763. At the time, the largest war in world history, you know, until the next one. We kind of have a bad habit of that as human beings. But you see amazing things in that war. It was Great Britain versus France. But it was fought on five continents, and the vast majority of the fighting was done by people that were not British or French. And they were fighting people who were not British or French for reasons other than the British and French reasons that started the war. People were fighting this war in India over ancient and, and deeply seated resentments that lasted for centuries before that. People fought this war in North America, native peoples who had never been to Britain or France. But when we see these big, massive world wars, that's one of the things that jumps out right away is that if you want to look at it this way, you could say the big, massive world war is really just uh, several small wars in different theaters fought for different reasons by different people. And the Winter War of 1939 and 1940, I think really can and should stand on its own because it challenges what we know of World War II. I mean, World War II is a backdrop for this war. Uh, and some people do say it's, you know, part of the war, which you're technically right. But to the people fighting, the Finns and the Soviets, it was very much a battle between them, more so than a larger global conflict. So, Henrik, we'll talk about Suo Musami today. If you'll, if you'll permit me, if you'll forgive me, I think we need to talk about the entire Winter War as a whole. But it does give us a really cool opportunity to examine this and to kind of get away from uh, U.S. history, because I do want to kind of spread this around a little bit. Um, every battle we've talked about so far has been an American battle. At any rate, um, what sets the stage for the Winter War? Well, a little bit of geography goes a long way in this discussion, because we're going to talk about, again, the Soviet Union, the largest contiguous empire on the planet at the time, stretching from uh, St. Petersburg in the east all the way to the St. Petersburg in the west, all the way to the Kamchatka Peninsula 
in the east. It's massive. It's enormous. Millions of people. And Finland, which is, uh, although a pretty impressive landmass, uh, much less so than the Soviet Union. And that's not saying much because the Soviet Union was bigger than everybody at the time. But Finland had a history that is unique, and I think it's worth mentioning. Um, for the early part of Finland's existence, the medieval period onwards, Finland was part of the Kingdom of Sweden. So when you talk about Scandinavian history, the Vikings and so forth, um, Finland did not control its own destiny. Sweden was very powerful. Finland was a part of that. And that was ultimately conquered by the Russians. That is, Imperial Russia sometime later. And really held all the way till the dawn of the 20th century. Now, at the dawn of the 20th century, something rather dynamic happens that changes the world as we know it. And it's World War I, beginning in 1914. World War I completely flips the world on its head. It finishes off some old superpowers that had been around for some time and creates many, many new ones. And the Finns were a people to benefit from this. Uh, the Russians were attempting to keep the Finns as part of their empire. Uh, and the Finns fought, effectively, a, a resistance movement, a movement of independence. And because of the Russian Revolution, uh, around 1920 and beyond, internal strife in, in Russia, we'll say, in the birth of the Soviet Union, the Finns were able to declare their independence, and they were unchallenged as a result. I mean, there was some skirmishing and fighting, but nothing like we're going to talk about today. And that kind of brings us to 1930 and the 1930s as a whole. We talked about the idea in previous episodes that in the 1930s, uh, many new worldviews were not only being born, but competing. Uh, one of the major ones being fascism in Europe, in all forms, uh, Mussolini and Hitler. But no matter what side you fall into, democracy, fascism, communism as the Soviets will, one thing is for sure, you want your worldview to win out. And that'll let us talk a little bit about the Soviet Union to have a better sense of this. But in 1939, the Soviet Union under the helm of Joseph Stalin is going to sign an agreement with Adolf Hitler's government. We call it the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, named after the two chief diplomats of those world powers. And this is signed in August, and what the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact basically says is, Germany wants to expand its worldview. The USSR wants to expand its own communist worldview. Why don't we just ignore one another, chop up what lies between us amongst ourselves, and leave things be as it were, with the Soviet Union dominating the East and the Nazi Third Reich dominating the West. The Soviets were, were all about this treaty. They knew Hitler was a threat. They knew he was expansionist in the, in the most realistic sense and total sense possible. But it also gave the Soviets a chance to develop what they called their own sphere of influence. So places like um, Estonia and Latvia, uh, parts of Poland... Uh, really all of Eastern Europe, would fall under what was called the Soviet sphere. Germany would get everything else in Europe to the West. And that's how they had it planned out. Now again, this is before the United States is really involved, two years before Pearl Harbor. Uh, World War II is in full swing with the British and French versus the Germans. And again, it challenges the way we view this war, because we love to think of war as a game. 
And what I mean is if you look at sports, especially uh, team sports, it's modeled after a war. You have teams in different uniforms, you have captains, you have generals or coaches. And in the end, somebody wins and somebody loses. And the way you determine it is a score count, a body count, effectively. But war doesn't play that way. And World War II doesn't play that way. We love to make wars in the West, good versus evil, us versus them, or whatever. But World War II is so big and so vast, it doesn't always play by those same rules. And this winter war we're going to talk about today is a part of that. Now, some of the countries in Eastern Europe... Uh, threw their hands in the air, we'll say, when the Russians came knocking. Um, Finland was not one of them. The Russians basically told them, we're going to take you over, you're going to be part of our empire. Uh, if you fight us or resist us, we will squash you. And some of these states just couldn't compete, especially in Eastern Europe. They're very small. I mean, Russia has an army of millions of people because their population's so big. Some of these small Eastern European countries had an army of tens of thousands of people. They couldn't compete. I mean, in some cases, the Russians had more tanks than some of these armies had people. So what choice do they have? When the Soviets come knocking, um, there's, not much, there's not much option. But the Finns didn't do that. The Finns uh, had, a, had a new appreciation for their independence, a deep appreciation for their independence. They were a free people. They wanted to stay a free people. And they basically told the the Soviets, we will resist under any circumstances. Now, this can really boil down to the fall of 1939 when things get started in the Winter War. When the Soviets will call upon Finnish diplomats and say, listen, our capital city, formerly St. Petersburg, at the time Leningrad, sits about... 30 miles from the border of Finland. Helsinki, the capital of Finland, wasn't much further than that. And for the Soviets, that was a very big problem. Because again, Leningrad was their city. And they wanted, because they have this enormous country, they wanted their most politically valued city to be surrounded by that land, to benefit from it. But it really didn't, because it sat on the edge. And they asked the Finns to cede land to them that would effectively push the frontier further away. They were trying to bully the Finns. Give us your land. Land that belongs to you and always has belonged to you. Because we would like more of it to surround our, our city. And the Finns weren't happy about that. Uh, and again, in 1939, this leads to one of these clash of ideals. The communist Soviets, their worldview versus the Finns, and their free worldview. And the Soviets made it clear they would be punished as a result. Neither side really understood what was coming next. I always contend with wars like this. If they knew how bad it would have been, they probably wouldn't have done it. The Soviets, it's hard to make that case because they have so many people, they can afford to lose them effectively. And they, they abuse their soldiers in that way. But this will set the stage in November of 1939 uh, for a hostile takeover by the Soviet Union of the country of Finland. It's very easy for us to talk about the Soviets like the big bad. You know, this big villain at the time. Uh, but the rules still did even apply to them. And there was a seeking of a diplomatic solution early on 
but it was very much a solution on the USSR's terms. I mean, it just was. And diplomatic relations will ultimately break off between the two powers uh, in November of 1939. During that time, the Soviets are sort of looking for an excuse or a reason to initiate conflict with the much smaller Finland. There's an incident on a border town where a Soviet guard is killed by an explosion. The Soviets will say, well, clearly the Finns are responsible for this. They need to be punished. The Finns, as it turns out, had nothing to do with it. Any historian who's looked at it has determined it was sort of done from within uh, by the uh, sort of Soviet secret intelligence authority at the time. Um, and for the Soviets, that was enough to initiate this conflict. Now, on the Finnish side, even though the Finns, by the way, offered to investigate this fully jointly with the Soviet Union, uh, nothing ever came of it. It didn't need to. The Soviets had an objective in mind, and they wanted it. Well, the Finns will become, uh, again, very defensive. They'll say, this is our land, you can't have it. Uh, and a hero of the Finnish military sort of rises up and will lead this resistance against the much bigger Soviet force. I mean, the Soviets can muster, uh, at the drop of a hat, a million men for an invasion of Finland. The Finns, uh, about a third of that. And that's really all they're going to have. Uh, the Soviets can always draw on more. But the Finnish uh, leader you want to know, the name you should know, is a man named Carl Gustav Mannerheim. Carl uh, Gustav Mannerheim. And Carl Gustav Mannerheim, and, and, Gustav Mannerheim, and this is one of the reasons as someone who specializes in the 18th century, that I love this conflict in terms of st studying this conflict. Because Mannerheim, when you look at him, yes, it's 1939, is really, I mean, he's from another time. Mannerheim is tall, he's fit, um, he is from the sort of martial aristocracy of the Finnish world, and he kind of dresses like a man from a hundred years earlier. I mean, he looks like he's transported from some other feudal age of, of European history. But he's the one that's going to defend Finland from this oncoming Soviet attack. And that is not easy. In fact, some would say it's crazy. But he does lead the charge. Now, again, I'll put a map of this on Facebook, facebook.com slash Brady J. Kreitzer, also on Twitter, at Brady Kreitzer. You almost need to see it to get it. But the primary invasion point of Finland, Finland sits in the northwest of the Soviet Union. It's a very small strip of land between two fairly large bodies of water. So what I'm saying is, with Lake Ladoga in the east and the Gulf of Finland in the west, it's, a, it's almost a channel into the Finnish world, really the only one available to the Soviets, by the way, called the Karelian Isthmus. And the Karelian Isthmus, again, not very big, but the primary directive into the country. The Soviets can and will invade further north, but the landscape there is very harsh. It's very cold. Not ideal. The land is marshy, very uh, difficult to pass through. Roads are few and far between. We'll talk about this. So this Karelian Isthmus uh, is the way into Finland. Mannerheim knows it on the Finnish side, and the Soviets know it as well. The Soviets will need a direct assault on the Karelian Isthmus if they want to break through the country. Mannerheim will establish a series of earthworks, trenches, that becomes known as the Mannerheim Line. 
You may be familiar with other lines in previous wars, maybe one of World War One also starts with an M. This is nothing like that. It's much smaller, but same principle. Because he knows the frontal assault will need to come from there. By the time you reach uh, November 30th of 1939, it all begins. Helsinki is bombed for the first time in its history. And this is a bombing that Hitler, even though he had nothing to do with it, would have been very, very fond of. Uh, very much in the style of the Blitzkrieg. If the Finns didn't know they were at war with a much bigger, more powerful force at the time, they certainly knew now. Right away, even if this is your very first uh, episode of wartime, right away, a massive Soviet army of over a million men and a very relatively small Finnish army, about a third of the size total, this should not be competitive. The commanders and leaders and officers of the Soviet army uh, should run right over the Finns. But this not only will be competitive, but the Finns will find great success early on. So why? Well, when the Soviets come storming into that Karelian Isthmus, they do it, again, it's called the Winter War, in December of 1939, one of the coldest winters ever recorded. Snow is very deep on the ground. Finland is, is frozen, effectively, at the time. Uh, and the temperature... Is something like minus 40 degrees. I mean, it's unbelievable. This is what some have called the frozen hell. And when you think about this war, I want you to think about an insane climate of cold weather. The Soviets will storm across the Isthmus several times because of the earthworks, the trenches, and the relatively meager machine guns they have. The Finns are able to hold them off. Why? Well, the Finns know what this place is like. They live there all the time. They choose to be there, right? Uh, so when the Finns go to war, and this is so cool, well, I'll put pictures online. You can you can watch it. They're dre dressed head to toe in camouflage. What kind of camouflage? Well, what does the climate look like? It's snow everywhere. They're dressed in white, white boots, white pants, white coat, white hoods. I mean, they blend right in with the frozen tundra, so to speak. But the Soviets, again, these guys are, are drafted and conscripted from all over the empire. They show up in dark brown, dark green, and black. I mean, you could not pick a worse color for a, uh, a battleground like this. I mean, at least in the Battle of Hoth, the stormtroopers and snowtroopers wore white, right? That's Star Wars joke. Uh, but... The Soviets come charging in, hundreds of thousands of them, over the next several weeks, and the Finns just mow them down. They can't see the enemy, the Finns can see them. That's a big part of it. The weather is so cold in this battle, in this war, uh, that the Russians are literally freezing where they stand. I mean, the Russians are totally unprepared for this war, which we'll talk about why. They don't have enough food, they don't have enough supplies. They aren't prepared for fighting in that kind of weather. Uh, I'm not a scientist by any means, but I've seen the videos and pictures. This actually happened. Uh, that the only thing keeping the Soviet soldiers alive was the fact that their blood was slowly but steadily circulating. I mean, there were times whenever 
Uh, if the heart stopped, or if the blood pressure dropped, say from being shot with a bullet or cut with a knife, a blade, as soon as the blood circulation slowed, uh, the men would literally freeze in place. And there are there are iconic images of Soviet soldiers with bullet holes. Uh, one man had his throat cut, and they literally stomp immediately, frozen like statues. It's a cold you can't even imagine. It's conditions you would never, ever want to find yourselves in. But for the Finns, it was perhaps their greatest weapon. So why were the Soviets so unprepared for this? If they wanted this fight, if they invaded this country, seemingly unabated, why were they so ill-prepared? Well, this gets back to the leadership, Joseph Stalin. Joseph Stalin in The Great Purge uh, wiped out anyone he considered to be a political enemy. This included civilians, this included the military. Something like uh, 70 to 80% of the officers of his Red Army were executed for being suspicious, right? Possible enemies of the state. And what that meant was the officers and commanders they had for the invasion of Finland in 1939 uh, were men who either weren't experienced or uh, had been around for so long and done so little that uh, they were wholly incompetent. I mean, they just weren't the people that got things done. They weren't decision makers. And they had to learn the hard way here in December of 1939 uh, that uh, they could not compete. Uh, and they had a lot to learn. Now, even though the commanders were so poorly prepared for this, I mean, again, this should not have been a competitive war by the standards that you judge it, the Finns found a lot of success early on. Um and they did that because of creative thinking and, more than anything else, knowing the land and where they're fighting. You see, the Soviets had tanks. I mean, they had lots of tanks. And the Finns had very few of those. And when it came time to fight uh, on this frozen, wooded landscape, uh, the Finns, some of them, I would dare say most of them, had never even seen a tank before. And that's a formidable obstacle. But the Finns, again, thought on their feet. And they found ways of eliminating this new threat. And they did it basically in a few ways. All of it was up close and personal. Maybe the greatest weapon the Finns had to disabling the Soviet tanks and evening the playing field was what we call today the Molotov cocktail. You take gasoline, you put it in a jar, you tie a rag to the top of the bottle, you light it on fire, and you throw it. And there you have an instant uh, flamethrower so to speak. And what the Finns did was very easy. They'd run up behind the tanks, because again, the dangerous part of the tank is that, you know, the pointy thing in the front, the gun. And they would throw the Molotov cocktail right near the vents of the tank. And the vents would suck in the gasoline, the flaming gasoline, into the engine, and the tanks would blow up. There is nothing high-tech about that. There is nothing fancy or expensive about that. I mean, half a gallon of gasoline you can disable a tank that was worth thousands upon thousands of dollars at that time. So these are the kind of ways they they find success. One of the other things they do, because again, these tanks are not overly impressive on the Soviet side. There were a lot of them, uh, but they weren't, I would say, technologically advanced like the Germans or the Americans had. Was that the tanks uh, would run like tanks do, with treads instead of tires. And one of the things the Finns would do is they would run up with large logs and they'd stick those logs right into the treads of the tank. It would jam it up, it would debilitate it, Molotov cocktail, game over. Again, not expensive, 
and by no means should they be competitive, but they are. And the important thing is we understand the reasons for it. So again, this is all going on in World War II, what we think of as World War II. It really kicks off in September of 39, a few months earlier, but it's happening. But it's very much its own war. And what is at stake is the sovereignty of Finland. Other countries have already fallen to the Soviets. Latvia, Estonia, they have fallen, resistance or not. So for the Finns, they know if they're defeated by the Soviet juggernaut, they're finished. Now, after December of 1939, and it's hard fighting, thousands upon thousands die for an entire month, Joseph Stalin wants to know why in the world is Finland not only competitive, but still beating us? What's happening? Well, of course, nobody has the heart to tell Stalin, you killed anyone who could have actually led our troops to victory. So Stalin calls upon one of the few officers that survived this great purge. Uh, and he will basically revamp the struggle against Finland in such a way that as competitive as the Finns were, uh, they could not stand up to, and no one could, as we get into the year 1940. When Joseph Stalin looked at the events of the previous month, he saw a lot of issues, a lot of problems, which we've talked about. He saw many, not only thousands of men, but hundreds of thousands of men be led to their death. He saw poor decisions. And one particular campaign stood out to him as evidence that he needed a drastic change. And this began again in December of 1939 into 1940. That was called the Battle of Suomussalmi. Suomussalmi is not near the theater we've been talking about. What we've been dealing with is, for Finland, uh, the very southeastern corner, the Karelian Isthmus. This area is up north, in the really frozen stuff, in the really difficult areas, uh, where another Soviet invasion will occur. Now, the plan was, move into that part of Finland, cut the country in half. You can control railroad depots, you can control a city called Suomussalmi, not very big, but important, because there wasn't much in the way of big cities in the north. And the Soviets went full bore into it. As they did so, uh, they took tanks and manpower by the, again, hundreds of thousands, and they moved them along a road called the Rata Road. Now, this goes to show, again, the Finns' advantage. When the Soviets looked at a map of Finland, they saw a lot of roads in this northern area. And on a map, those roads could look very attractive. What the Soviets didn't realize was, because they lacked the really strong intelligence gathering that military officials are known for today, was that although these roads look really formidable on a map, in reality, they're single-lane logging roads. Uh, they're dirt roads, which, by the way, when you're that far north, become ice roads. So these are not by any means passable roads. So what you have in the north, and this is effectively uh, the attack on Suomussalmi, which Henrik asked us to talk about, and the Battle of the Rata Road, was a very long, thin line of Soviet soldiers, up to 35 miles long, in fact, snaking their way on these tiny little logging roads, which were by no means designed for a major military operation. As the Soviets worked their way through uh, the Finnish countryside, they're dealing with frozen lakes, impassable forests, uh, streams and rivers. Again, it's a really difficult place just for living, yet alone moving a modern army through. And what they did was really got themselves locked in a situation where the only direction they could go was forward. 
and the Finns took great advantage of that. They knew that all through that countryside, as the Soviet soldiers tried to march and trudge through the snow in their boots, it wasn't working. The Finns knew the best way to move through that countryside was on skis. So that's what they did. They cross-country skied all along up and down that Rata Road for 35 miles along the way. And the Soviets really couldn't do anything to stop them. I mean, I want you to think about this battle. Soviets in dark uniforms, not really committed to the cause. That's easy to say. Um, hundreds of miles from home. Uh, trudging through conditions that no human being, minus 40 degrees, starving for the most part, should have to deal with. Then you have the Finns with cross-country skis, moving up and down freely, uh, not twice as fast as the Soviets, even more than that, taking pot shots along the way. The great success the Finns had in this campaign uh, was by using what they called the multi-system. The multi-system was uh, basically chop up that Soviet line into small sections and eliminate them. A multi, by the way, was uh, a piece of wood that you would cut. Uh, and divide into sections for firewood. And that's basically the idea. Uh, they would ski up alongside the Soviets, open fire, isolate one part of this very long line, build earthworks and fortifications at either side of it, trapping them, and then just wipe them out. Molotov cocktails, machine guns, sometimes just knives, uh, really did the trick. There's, again, that famous scene of soldiers with their throats cut, Soviet soldiers with their throats cut, literally frozen in place the second their blood pressure dropped. It, it, it's almost unthinkable to say this is just a small part of World War II because there's so much at stake and there's so much going on. But you do have this very, very small Finnish force defeating a much bigger Soviet force. And again, as you get to 1940 and Joseph Stalin's looking back, Sumosami is a disaster, and he wants to know why. Well, he really pulls out all the stops for 1940. In January of 1940, just to give you some idea of what Stalin comes back with, he calls upon a general named Semyon Timoshenko, and this guy was legit. He's one of the really good officers who wasn't killed for being a suspected political enemy. And Timoshenko revamped everything. Just to give you an idea of how important this, what we call, winter war was, and how big it was, and how crazy it is that we don't know enough about it, I want you just to think about one figure from this whole episode. The invasion force that Semyon Temeshenko takes back to Finland in 1940 to finish what he believed should have been a very easy expedition was three times larger than the D-Day invasion force at Operation Overlord. Think about that. We think of D-Day as the granddaddy of them all. But the Soviet army was so big, the invasion force for Finland was literally three times larger than the D-Day invasion force. That is unbelievable. That's a figure that when I heard it, I knew this winter war was much more important than anyone ever told me, and I had to know more about it. So that's why I'm so glad Hendrik reached out to me for this. But when this happens, Carl Gustav Mannerheim realizes, as much as the Finns want to be independent, as much as they value their freedom, and they really want to beat the Soviets, no country could stand up to that kind of firepower. Hitler's on the rampage in the south, and now this enormous Soviet war machine comes knocking. And it didn't take long for that massive venture to find success. The Mannerheim line breaks 
the Soviets push it back and push it back and push it back. The worst case scenario for the Finns was for Helsinki, which is in the south, not far, by the way, from Leningrad, to be captured by the enemy. And the Soviets realize we have them exactly where we want them. So here's where things take an interesting turn. And we are leaving a lot of battles out here, but I want you to just think about some death tolls. And and and, and keep in mind, I'm reading this, uh, because again, I think when you're reading statistics like this, you want to get this right. When it was all said and done, the Soviets suffered anywhere from 320,000 to 360,000 casualties. Those are people. Those are parents, sons, fathers, children that die. The Finns will lose upwards of 70,000 casualties. 70,000 casualties. Remember, the Soviets put in almost a million men to invade Finland. The Finns, at their most, had less than 350,000. So when it's all said and done, this big invasion force comes... The gloves are off. What do the Finns do? Well, the Finns make a strategic decision. And again, it will challenge the way we think of wars and their outcomes. The Finns decide to call for a peace. This is not a surrender, but it's a call for a peace. And their thinking was, they've both given so much, and this war can only get worse. Let's just end this now. And here's what they offer the Soviets. They offer the Soviets everything they asked for before the war began. Giving them land concessions, moving the border back, giving up pieces of Finland so that Leningrad feels safer. And in exchange, all they wanted was an end to hostilities. They actually voluntarily give up more than the Soviets originally asked for. So from our vantage point, there's a clear winner and a clear loser here. The Soviets came in with a plan. This is what they wanted. They ended up getting more. Nikita Khrushchev, as a young man, said, taking Finland would be a matter of just asking. And if they didn't give up then, then they'd fire one shot and it'd be over. Not exactly. Not exactly. Half a million dead. Nearly as a result. But it's not that cut and dry. And that's one of the things I wanted to express about war and fighting. It's all politics. For the Finns, they consider the Winter War to be a big victory for them. A great victory for them. The kind of victory you not only hang your hat on as a nation, but the kind of victory that defines who your nation is. What you stand for. What makes a Finn a Finn. The Karelian Peninsula is gone. Believe it or not, that it's still part of Russia today. And it doesn't look like they're giving it up. But from the Finnish viewpoint, they came out on top. Why? Every other power that resisted the Soviet Union, Estonia, Latvia, Poland, and so on, became absorbed, conquered, and ruled by the Soviet Union. They were not a free peoples anymore. From the Finnish viewpoint, though, yes, they gave up land, about 11% of their land, almost 30% of their economy, by the way, to the Russians, but they still existed. They were still a free people when it was all cut and dry. And the end... That's the way it looked. So for them, uh, and again, we'll put this on Facebook, we'll put this on Twitter, uh, this was a concession that was a good one. Yes, you lose, again, about 10% of your territory, but you keep 89%. 
Yes, you lose 30% of your economy, but you keep 70. But the most important thing is that you are a free people in the end. Now, this story gets really flipped on its head for Americans because all the while this is happening, the Americans are raising money for the Finns. They're saying this is a, a real cause of liberal democracy. The Brits are there. The French are there. People are volunteering to fight with the Finns. That was all true. Willingly going into the frozen hell. Um, but things get a little hairy later on. Uh, because, again, the Finns are all very much um, trying to maintain their own survival. They'll make a deal in the years to come with Adolf Hitler. And that deal was predicated not on Hitler's views, not because they believed in Nazism or fascism, but because Hitler was fighting the Soviets too. By the time you get to 1942 and 1943. So the Finns will side with them. Why? To keep the Russians away. When the Allies come in next... The Finns make an agreement with the Allies, part of that predicated on pushing the Nazis out of Finland, helping them fight the Russians. So, again, don't, don't try to place this in the context of good and bad, who's right and who's wrong. Uh, keep it in context of what it is. It was a hellish war fought in some of the coldest conditions in world history. Maybe the coldest war ever. That leaves us with an outcome that leaves effectively both sides feeling like they got something from it. Um, it's a confusing war. It lasts from December to March, so it's a less than five-month war. Uh, but it's an important war nevertheless. And again, it's one of those wars that shows that even though this great world war, the biggest war in world history, did occur, it did mean different things to different peoples. And that sort of narrative of worldviews, fascism versus democracy, didn't necessarily predicate or dictate how the war would play out over time. The Winter War is a very interesting war. Again, I'll put pictures online, but there's a lot of great videos from this. Uh, you cannot believe the way this plays out, the conditions it plays out, uh, why human beings would ever go to war in that situation, in those conditions. Just show exactly what was at stake here. So again, if you have recommendations for future episodes, I'm listening. That's two episodes in a row that came directly from you. Hey, thank you for joining us. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime.